Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys spending time with one another. We have opportunity to do that just uh, in a couple hours here. Uh, church picnic is today. Now, if some of you have other plans or haven't thought about it, you still have time to repent. You still have time to come. It's just we set aside a couple hours, uh, two, three hours for us just to gather together. And I really enjoy these because it's an opportunity we can hang out with one another, spend time together. It's informal. Uh, there's not pressure of having to get to another thing. And I've had some great conversations uh, in those church picnic times. So if you're somebody, if you feel like you don't feel connected here, maybe you're newer here, you don't know anybody, this is an opportunity to, to change that. And so we want to make sure and encourage you to do that. In fact, Somebody gave me an extra ticket. If you if you don't have a meal planned, if you're from far away and can't get home, some Tommy Burgers. So first one that comes up and asks for it, got a little meal uh, set set up for you. So make sure you're there. One o'clock, Robert Gross Park. Uh, it's over on Empire, and um, I did this first service. Uh, went Vista and Empire. Thank you. Um, so make sure to, to come over for that. There'll be a bounce house, activities for the kids. I think some games are planned for the kids as well, so uh, we can spend some time together. You know, I just think about, uh, you know, we take for granted the opportunities we have to spend time with one another. There are many places where we don't, where the church is is underground and hidden because they don't have the freedom to, to be able to interact with believers. So they... You know, I don't think we treat this as precious as it really is to be able to be with one another. You know, I was, with, uh, I was at the Harvest Crusade last night, and there were tens of thousands of people there singing to the Lord. And as they, you know, the cameras panned across the group, there were people from different, every tribe, tongue, and nation, every age, men and women, uh, children, who were singing out to the Lord. And just to be a part of that, thousands of people, and we were out, and the sky was above us, and it was just out in the middle of of the air, so to speak, and I just made me think a lot about what is it going to be like with the throngs in heaven singing to God. You know, we often take for granted as well the opportunity we have to sing to one another, and that's the beauty of singing. It's, it's done together. It's, it's, it's a community that we're all singing to God as, with one another. And so uh, the church picnic is just one more opportunity for fellowship, for interaction, for getting together. So please... Uh, set time aside for that. Also want to let you know about uh, Foundations class. It's a 13-week class that we offer here uh, for folks who maybe are new to the church or maybe you've been around a while and you want to brush up on some basic doctrines of the faith or maybe you have some questions about certain areas. Uh, well, we have a course that we set aside that we do a few times a year so that you can come. It's called Foundations. We're starting another one up on September 23rd. It'll meet second hour, 11 o'clock in room 203. If you're interested in that, um, there's a sign-up opportunity over at the Hospitality Center down at the base of the stairs over here where you can sign up. And then we'd encourage you, too, to purchase a, a book from the bookstore workbook called Fundamentals of the Faith. Yes, there is a little homework with the class, but don't let that scare you. Homework's a good thing, right? opportunity to spend time in the Word during the week. So again, we're starting that up September 23rd, if you're interested in that. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go to His Word. Father, you are, as John David was talking about, uh, one who listens, a God who listens, who hears, who answers. And Lord, you're also a God who speaks, who's told us so much about yourself. For that, we are thankful. And Lord, desire to hear from you this morning. We desire to know your mind and your heart. Lord, please teach us. 
Please use your word by your spirit to illumine us and to empower us to live it out. And Lord, we thank you again for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We're going to be back in Ephesians for this morning, so you can be turning there. And I'd like to introduce our passage uh, this week with a few questions. Uh, what is the greatest of all virtues? What is it that probably is the most difficult quality to truly live out? What's the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22? You want a master's, right? Love. What's patient, kind, overlooks offenses, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things? Right? What is it that Dionne Warwick says the world needs now? Okay, skip the last one. But they all have the same answer, right? Is love. Biblical love. True biblical love is critical to the Christian life, especially in our battle with sin. As Pastor Ed pointed out last week, that sin and love do not go hand in hand. He talked about the fact that we can't be loving and sinning at the same time, right? I can't be loving God and at the same time sinning against Him. I can't be loving you, extending love towards you, and at the same time sinning against you. Sin and love are mortal enemies. They're not compatible. They don't coexist. As Pastor Ed said, no sin can stand before love. And that's really what Paul, I think, is driving at here in the last half of chapter 4 in Ephesians. As you turn there, I want you to remember, let's recall, with the first three chapters, Paul talked about, he laid the foundation of, again, what, who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. He, he talked about how God has saved us and what God has done in that and that, how he has brought about fellowship with himself and with his people. And Paul was laying a foundation for, then in chapter 4, he calls on believers to respond to what God has done in us, to who we are in Christ, to have lives where our conduct is consistent with the change that he has brought about through his son. So in the first 16 verses, Paul focuses on walking worthily by walking in unity, by focusing our attention on preserving the unity that the Spirit has brought about in Christ. It's a unity that's maintained, as we've been discussing, as we function properly, as we do the work of service, as we all are focusing on discipleship, coming alongside one another, serving one another, being accountable to one another. And then in verse 17, Paul moves from that walk in unity to a walk in holiness, where he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Don't walk like you used to as an unbeliever. And Paul says that you can do that because you've been reborn. You've been transformed from the old man to the new. The new man, though not perfect, is one who's no longer enslaved to sin like the old man. The new man, though not yet having arrived, is now being renewed by the Holy Spirit. It's being transformed in faith. And then in verse 25, Paul again transitions to a third walk command. There he gives this third command, and he does so by first giving specific applications of that command, specific responses to what he has just said about the fact that we have been transformed and reborn. The idea in that, therefore, verse 25 is, because of what God has done, because of who I am now, therefore I must respond. Therefore I I can respond. And the response he focuses on in those verses is simply, how do we treat one another? Because of the change that God has brought about in us, how do we then treat each other? How are we to 
be with one another. So look with me at Ephesians 4.25. And again, I would ask you to please stand in honor of God's words as it is read. God speaking through Paul says this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, now here's where Paul gets to it. Here's where we see what walking a worthy walk looks like in real life and how we treat each other. For if I'm a new man, if I've been changed, if I've been transformed, if I've been converted, then that should affect how I interact with you, right? And that should affect how we interact and treat one another. So Paul now moves for from our front porch into our living room and he's going to get in our kitchen a little bit here. This is where the rubber meets the road. These specific ways in which our new life in Christ should manifest itself and how we treat each other and how we respond to one another. Paul gives here several areas of how the redeemed should treat each other. And this is where, again, the rubber meets the road, where doctrine meets duty, where our position in Christ meets our practice in Christ, where what I know should impact how I live. Paul describes here several different areas, as I said, in how we treat one another. And they all center around one specific theme. They're all based on one principle, one idea. The worthy walk is not only a walk in unity. It's not only a walk in holiness, but a worthy walk is also a walk in love. Because if you are indeed transformed, if you are indeed a Christian, if you are saved, then you will walk in love. And in verses 25 to 32, we see several specific ways that that walk in love manifests itself. It it shows itself by not lying to one another, but speaking truth. By not giving in and expressing sinful anger toward one another. By not stealing from one another, but rather giving. By not succumbing to sinful conflict, but by forgiving. By not using our words to tear each other down, but to build one another up. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at these. We're going to have Paul get into our kitchen a little bit, look around and kind of talk to us. We're going to look at several things. But this week, I wanted to focus on that that hub, that that foundation and that, that walk in love. Because if we concentrate on that command, it is that command that then sets the stage for living out the other ones in our lives, right? If we are walking in love, we will indeed be treating one another as verses 25 to 32 lay out for us. So let's look again at the main command, the main idea in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says there, Therefore, become imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. 
an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. That therefore tells us, in ver- that therefore in verse 25, tells us that these previous eight verses can be summed up. Sorry, the therefore here in chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that the previous eight verses can be summed up in this command to walk in love. It looks like two commands there. Paul says, become imitators of God and walk in love. But semantically, they really are one. Become imitators of God by walking in love. So this morning, we're going to focus on that. We're going to look at the instruction or the mandate to walk in love. And then secondly, we'll look at the incentive or the motivation to walk in love. Let's first look at the instruction to walk in love. You know, even a cursory reading of the Bible especially in the New Testament, you're going to come across this word love quite a bit, right? This command to love one another isn't something new. It's not something that had to be pulled out of an obscure text in Ezekiel or somewhere. It's all over the place. In fact, over 300 times in the New Testament, the word love or its derivatives is used. Paul and John loved to use the word love. In fact, over two-thirds of, their, of the usage of the word love and its, and its derivatives are found in their writings. Book of Ephesians, Paul uses the word over 20 times. Love is everywhere. And I don't think it would be overstating the fact to say that love is the key verb in the Bible. In fact, Jesus shows us that, doesn't he? What did he tell us was the most important command in all of Scripture? You should know this, right? To love God with all our being. And the second one is like it, right? To love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, God set as a priority love. And then Jesus said, upon these two commands depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. We could sum the whole Bible up into love. Into love. If that doesn't elevate love to chief status, I mean, I don't know what would. Jesus takes all the Bible and boils it down to love. Paul said in Galatians 5, 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were seeking, if you were to seek one mark, one defining quality, one aspect, one attribute, one, one basic definition of a Christian, and it is a person who loves. That's what sets us apart. That's what identifies us as followers of Christ. You know what Jesus said about that, right? When he talked to the disciples, he said, all men will know you're my disciples if you, what? Love one another. Jesus laid it out very simple. He says, look, people look at your life, They'll know you're a Christian. They'll know you're one of mine if you simply love each other. Jesus was very clear on that. And that importance of loving one another wasn't lost on Paul here to the Ephesians. Several different times he tells them about their need to love one another. If you look in Ephesians 1, 15, Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints... And then in 4.2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Or in 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Or 4.16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and joined together, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? Love. 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 5.28, So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. 
And then here in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, three different times he repeats this word love, where he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. I mean, there can be no mistake of the importance it is to God that we love one another. In fact, of all the one another commands in the New Testament, over one quarter of them are the command to love one another. Jesus said five different times in the upper room to his disciples, love one another. What does this tell us about this instruction to love? Is it something incidental to the Christian life? Is it something Jesus threw in there just because it sounds religious and spiritual and nice? Is it something that is random? Is is something that's not really that significant to God? Obviously no, right? A thousand times no. It is the central theme of, Of those who are in Christ. It is central to who we are in Christ. In fact, it is the evidence that we are in Christ. It is the evidence that God has transformed us. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, you know the song. He that loveth not, right? Or the one who does not love does not know God. Wow. It could not be any direct any more direct or any more clear. That tells me that if there's anything I need to be giving my attention to, it is to how I am or whether I am loving you. If there's anything you need to be focused on in the Christian life, it is to be how are you loving one another? Peter said in 1 Peter 1.22, fervently, that is eagerly, constantly, earnestly love one another from the heart. Jesus said in John fifteen twelve, this commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This I command you, that you love one another. We need to picture our Lord and Savior who is still alive, is he not? Standing before us, commanding us, saying, you are to love one another. You are to love one another. This I'm commanding you to carry out. The question is, are we obeying his orders? Are you a follower of Christ? Then love your brother. Are you one who claims to know God? Then love your sister. Do you love Jesus? And love his disciples. This command is so important. And I think there are so many misconceptions about love. You've probably heard sermons or messages on love that talk about the, the world's view of love and, and what that is contrasting to what the biblical view of love is. And, and since this command of love is so important, we need to understand what did Jesus mean when he gave it? When he said, this I command you to love one another, what was he saying? So let's spend a, a moment to be clear on this. Because simply put, love is the unconditional action and attitude for the benefit of another. To see that, we're going to turn to, yes, the love passage, 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to look there for a moment with me. Again, as it's, it's otherwise known as the love chapter. You've probably heard it in many weddings. Hallmark has made a lot of money off of these verses. We see them a lot when we talk about love. Some of them, verses here, you probably have memorized. Now, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. There was division, selfishness. Uh, they permitted, allowed immorality. There were abuse of the gifts. They weren't getting along. In fact, they would have feasts together and then they would leave, specifically leave people out of those feasts together and then celebrate communion together. 
They had a lot of problems going on. And Paul identifies one of the main reasons that these problems were in existence among this church. In 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about this. Starting in verse 1. If I speak with the men of tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Such a rich, poetic expression of the wonderful truth regarding not only the importance of love, but what love is. He says, if you don't love one another, it doesn't matter what you do for Jesus. It doesn't matter what you sacrifice. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It it doesn't matter where you're at, what you've done. If you don't show love for one another, Paul says here, it's nothing. It gives you nothing. It profits you nothing. You are nothing. Love is paramount. Love for one another is essential. And notice in verses 4 to 7, Paul gives several very short two and three word descriptive phrases of love. He talks about them. And we're going to, I want to make three observations here about love from those verses. And the first one is simply this, that love is an action. You've heard the statement, love is a verb, right? Well, in these verses, that is literally the case. Every single phrase contains a verb. Every single phrase describing love contains an action associated with that love. Now, it looks like a few of them are adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant. But actually, even those phrases are verbs. You could better translate them as love forbears. Love acts kindly. Love does not boast about itself, does not praise itself. See, this is love. Love is action. Love is not one that waits for feeling. Biblical love sees a need and responds. Biblical love does what is right no matter what. Biblical love labors. And it labors not for personal gain, but for the benefit of someone else. All of these actions are done for the sake of someone else. This gives a second observation that biblical love is an unconditional action. It's not based on a response. It's not based on what one can receive back for it. Biblical love does not say, I will love you if you, or I will love you because you, or I will love you when you, or as you, or since you. Biblical love simply says, I will love you, period. I will work towards your good. I will make effort and labor towards your benefit. I will seek your gain, especially spiritually, without expecting any reciprocation. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6:32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Expecting nothing in return. If we're supposed to do that even with our enemies, how much more so with our brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more so our wives or our husbands? How much more so our children, our family? We're to expect nothing in return. And yet our society is almost built on doing things for someone else because of what they do for me. Because of how they fulfill me or what I will get back in payment for it. But see, love expects nothing in return. And this leads to a third observation that biblical love is completely selfless. It's in total opposition to the flesh. I think we can see that in how Paul structures this second half of chapter 4 in Ephesians, where he begins in verse 17 with this idea of walking in, not walking as you used to walk, but walking in holiness. And he describes that walk, not walking as an unbeliever in verse 19, where he says, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. To walk as the old you was to walk in selfishness, to simply live life self-seeking or whatever you could gain for yourself. But then the new you, the one that the, the new you that Christ has transformed, is to walk in love. And that's how he bookends the end of this section in five two, where he says, "Walk in love." That's the total opposite to walking as you used to walk. It's a complete turn of events. It's a, a revolution that's taken place in your heart. Rather than living for self, you live for one another. Rather than seeking your own good, you seek the highest good for others. Rather than taking for yourself, you now give of yourself for the benefit of another. And so biblical love really is this unconditional action and attitude for the benefit of another. And I added that word and attitude on purpose because I think there can be such an emphasis on love as an action that we can have this idea that there should be no feeling at all, that the implication is it doesn't matter how you feel, you just need to be focusing on the acting part, on the action. Maybe you've heard the expression, I can love them, but I don't have to like them. Is that true? Is it true? Now, it is true that I need to love despite how I feel. I can't wait for feelings to come along. I need to serve and take action for your benefit despite how I feel. But does that mean I have to be completely devoid of feeling? Does that mean that that I don't need to cultivate an affection for you? Does that mean I don't have to like you? I don't have to care about you at all as long as I serve you. Is that biblical love? No, it is not. And I say that for a couple reasons. First, I want you to think about God's love for you. How does God love you? Does God love you out of obligation and duty and uncaring activity? Yeah, I created those things. I guess I better take care of them. Is that how God views us? Is He merely carrying out some responsibility, some obligation that He has has given for Himself? Listen to the words Jesus spoke in Matthew 23, 37. To a group of people who had consistently killed those that God had sent to call them back to a group of people who were consistently unrepentant, consistently hating God. Listen how Jesus approaches them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. 
Or, and God's speaking to, to Jonah, the disgruntled Jonah in Jonah 4.11, and he explains why he saved the wicked Ninevites. God says there, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are over 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand or their left? Or, or how did Jesus respond? How did he serve? What was his love? What did it look like when he was upon this earth? When people would come to him broken and battered by sin, did he think, oh, great, time to heal them. I, I'm supposed to do that. I need to love you now. What did it say Jesus felt oftentimes when these people came to him? He felt compassion. Compassion is a word that, that means it's a stirring of the bowels. It's a physical impact. God doesn't say, I will love you, but I don't have to like you. And neither should we. Second reason that biblical love includes attitude is found in Romans 12. Turn over there for a minute to Romans 12. There's a couple short verses there that are very important to give us a right understanding of, of what this idea of biblical love is and how it connects to not just my actions, but my attitudes towards you. Romans 12, we'll be reading from verse 9. Paul says there, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. And verse 10 gives two very important words in considering what kind of love it is that we are to express and have toward one another. The first word is the word devoted. It comes from a Greek word philostorgos. And it simply means to love dearly with a familial devotion, the kind of devotion you would have toward others in your family. And then Paul talks about here that this idea, it's an affection that a parent would have for a child, a, a brother for a sister, husband for a wife. And then he uses a second word, the word brotherly love. It's a Greek word you probably recognize. Those of you from Pennsylvania would know this one, I would hope. Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love, right? Again, another word that focuses on a familial affection, that focuses on how one feels about those in their family, or should feel. Paul gives here two words to emphasize our love is not simply one of duty, but also one that cultivates an affection. It's a devotion to one another. It's a commitment to one another, a loyalty to each other, as you would see in a tight-knit family. In fact, both of those words, philostorgos and Philadelphia, both contain the same root word at the beginning, philos. You've probably heard their three Greek words for love, right? Agape, philos, and eros. And how philos is more, sometimes the nuance there is toward the feeling, toward liking. Well, these two words contain that root word, that we are to like one another. You see, because biblical love extends beyond the hands and into the heart. Biblical love is unconditional action and attitude for the benefit of one another. It seeks to meet the needs and, and concerns of one another, not just out of duty or obligation, but out of fondness. We're humans, right? We're human beings. We express emotion. We were made with emotion. Emotion's not the bad guy here. But it's what we do with it and how we get there that we have to be careful of. But we are to use those emotions... In biblical love, we are to show an affection, cultivate an affection for one another. Now, some of you may be saying, 
Really? How does that work? How do I do that? I mean, do you, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what this person over here is like? I mean, come on. How can I be devoted to that person with filial affection? I was in purposely, I didn't point out there anywhere, so none of you would think. Right? How, how in the world does that happen? I mean, do you know what they've done to me? Do you know how they have treated me? Do you know how they have harmed me? You don't understand how much I've had to endure from that person, or you don't know what it's like to spend time with that person. They're a little bit difficult. It's tough enough just serving them, but you're telling me I have to like them? Brothers and sisters, the biblical love does not say, I will love that person, but I don't have to like them. And if you're wondering, well, how do you get there? How does that work? Now we see the power of the gospel. Because you know what? It is impossible. There are some difficult people in the room. If you don't believe me, just hold up a mirror. Right? For some of us, you know, all of us were difficult for someone else here in this room. We have different personalities. We're built differently, different backgrounds. Some of us just have a knack for saying and doing things that are particularly offensive to someone else. And you're thinking, I kind of like that guy. You got to be kidding me. This is what separates being a follower of Christ from just being religious. Because you have God's spirit in you if you're a Christian. He doesn't give us commands that he won't empower us to live out. And there are other places where God commands us to have certain emotions. We're to long for the pure milk of the word. That's an emotion. And God doesn't command something that he's not going to equip us for. And in fact, here in Ephesians 5, as we've seen often in Ephesians, God not only gives the command, but he gives the incentive. He gives the motivation. He shows us what are some ways that we can cultivate that affection, that we can have a biblical love that wants to serve one another unconditionally. And there are three incentives I want to show you here. Three incentives, three motivations that that Paul gives here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. The first one is your commission. The second is your condition. And the third is your champion. Let's look first at the first incentive, your commission in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Imitator is a word, uh, mimitai, from which we get the word mimic. And it's this idea of, uh, at, at that time, was used for actors, for impersonators, for someone who would uh, copy the characteristics of somebody else. Now, Paul's not talking here about imitating God's essence. He's not saying here that we are to copy his divinity, become as God. He's not saying here that we're to mimic his incommunicable attributes, those qualities of God that God alone has, such as his omnipotence, his eternality, his omnipresence, his self-existence. But what Paul is saying here is that we are to copy his character, those communicable attributes, such as mercy, justice, love, forgiveness, kindness, honesty. And this principle is all over the place. This idea of copying God, of mimicking Him, of following His example. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5 when He gave the summary statement in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, Therefore you are to be perfect just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Or in Luke 6, 35, He said, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Or in John thirteen fifteen, 
After Jesus washed the disciples' feet as an act of humility, he says there, For I gave you an example that you should do just as I did to you. Or in Ephesians 4.32 that we read just a moment ago, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Or 1 John 2.6, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. See, fellow saints, God wants us to imitate him. God wants us to reflect his character. God wants us to mimic him, to copy him. For that's, that's really why we've been made. Right? We were made in his image, weren't we? We were made with the capacity to reflect the character of God. Of course, sin marred that. That's why Jesus came. And salvation is, the core of salvation, the purpose of salvation, is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would reflect his character. There are many more verses that talk about this, that God talking about, follow my example, imitate me, copy me in this way, be merciful as I am merciful, forgive just as I forgive, be kind as I have shown kindness, have grace as I show grace. You've heard the statement, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Well, in regards to God, imitation is the highest form of worship. And that word be in chapter 5 of Ephesians verse 1 is really a dynamic verb of being. It really should be become. Paul's talking here about a process. Again, it's not the holy zap that one day you're there and you're the perfect lover of all people. The perfect imitator of God. But no, it's a process that God works in us through His Spirit. It's something we're to pursue as a lifestyle to grow in and mature in. And to become imitators of God, we need to know God, right? You can't trace something that you don't understand. If someone put a blank piece of paper in front of you and said, trace that, what are you going to do? Right? We need to understand and know God in order to imitate Him. Spurgeon puts it like this. If we had to imitate a man and yet could not see him, we should find it hard work. But in this case, we can draw near to God. Some of us can shut the closet door and be alone with God when we will. We can even walk with God all day. What better conditions could we be under for imitating our God? Nearness to God brings likeness to God. The more you see God, the more of God will be seen in you. You remember the Persian story of the scented clay? One said to it, Clay, where did you get your delicious perfume? And it answered, I was nothing but a piece of common clay, but I lay long in the sweet society of a rose till I drank in its fragrance and became perfumed myself. Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you cultivating that relationship? You cannot absorb His sweet scent if you are not around Him. You can't copy what you don't know. You can't trace an image that you don't understand or can't see. And here in this book, we've been given that image to trace. And by His Spirit, He gives us understanding so that we may know God, so that we may understand Him, so that we may know His character. But that only comes as we dwell in the Word. And your first motivation here is to dwell in the Word so that you would become imitators of God. The second incentive is given in the very next phrase in Ephesians 5, as beloved children. 
That's not the first time that Paul has described us as children of God. In Ephesians 1.5, if you remember, he said, just as he predestined us to adoption as what? Sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Or in 2.19, he says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household. You're part of his family now. You're in God's home. And as wonderful as adoption is, as wonderful as being in his family is, he's done even more than that. 1 John 3, verse 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. It's more than just legal papers that God has signed. He's actually done a transformation within our souls that gives us a special connection to God. We're born of him. His seed abides in us. His spirit dwells within us. The Father is in us. Ephesians talked about the Son dwelling in us. Now, that doesn't mean we've been given His divine essence, but it's this idea we have a special fellowship with Him. It's this idea that we have been changed. He's changed our very nature at its core so that we can reflect the image of God because He's our Father now, and we're His children. And it's so natural for a child to imitate their father, Right? I remember when Daniel, my son, was about four or five years old, and um, I caught him one day. He was, uh, we were in, he was in one of the fellowship halls at the church we were at, and he was standing behind a pulpit. And he was kind of looking at the pulpit, and then he'd kind of look up and wave his arms around, and then he'd look back down at the pulpit. And I said, son, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to be a preacher. You know, I just remembered I, I had been preaching in that church not long before that. And, you know, he was imitating that. I think some of us wish there were things our kids didn't imitate about us. But that's natural. Just as a natural human child imitates and mimics qualities of his or her parents, so too we are to imitate our father. Because we're his kids, we bear his name. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the father has shown to us that we should be called his children. And such we are. It is said that a soldier named Alexander was once brought before Alexander the Great because he had pulled back in fear during a recent battle. And as he stood before the intrepid general, Alexander said this to him, How can you bear the name Alexander? Drop your cowardice or drop your name. If we bear the name child of God, we must act like it. Be like Christ or drop the name Christian. If we say we abide in Christ, then we ought to also walk in the same manner as he walked. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And I'm confident that there are some in this room who are imposters, who bear the name of Christ, but are not really followers of Christ. They don't show his character. Some here are engaged in ongoing, unrepentant sin with no desire to change. And I say this because I lived it. I lived for years that way, claiming the name of Christ, calling myself a child of God, but yet not living for him. I knew the message of salvation. I knew the facts of the gospel. In fact, I had led a couple other people to Christ through sharing with them the the way of the gospel and the death of Christ on the cross. But I was not his child. I had little interest in imitating the father. I had no interest in following the example of the son. And if that's you this morning, my friend, then you're in danger. 
You're like that person who is asleep in the back seat of a car on a journey and that car is about ready to go over a cliff. You feel like all is well, God will forgive me in the end, I'll sort those things out later on. It's a very dangerous place to be. And Jesus says to you now, drop your cowardice or drop your name. Confess your sin to Him. Ask Him to forgive you of that hypocrisy. Tell Him, Lord, I I know what I'm supposed to do. I know my life isn't consistent with that. So change me. You've got to do the work. I want to repent. I want to have faith in You. Grant it, Lord. Open my eyes that I might see. Because through His Son and His death on the cross and the power God showed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He can change you. He can change you. Drop your cowardice or drop your name. And when you do that, God will make you His child. And more than just His child, Ephesians 5 says, He will make you His beloved child. Beloved's an interesting word there. It was often used in classical Greek to refer to an only child, to someone who was given special devotion and attention by their parents so that they were content in that love given to them as an only child. It's almost in a sense here that this passage, Beloved Children, is describing us as God extending His love to you as if you were an only child. Knowing we are His beloved children Doesn't that add so much to motivating us to try to imitate Him? It's one thing to be His child, but to be a child that He has shown affection and special love towards. Children want to copy their parents, as I said. How much more so a child who loves his parents, who knows that he or she is loved by his parents. Brothers and sisters, you are dearly loved. You are beloved children, beloved by God. Become an imitator of your loving Father. Paul then gives a third incentive to walk in love in verse 2. He says there, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Here we see the third incentive is your champion, your example. That Christ showed us how to love, right? He said to his disciples, love one another even as I have loved you. This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now think about this a minute. How has Jesus loved you? How has Jesus loved you? He loved you, one, by giving up heaven to become a man. He loved you by living among us. He loved you by not sinning. He loved you by giving his time and his energy and his effort to train and teach and model And shepherd the disciples and give them the gospel message and empower them to deliver it so that we could have that message. Jesus loved you by giving his own life for you. And Jesus did all of that freely, without under compulsion. He didn't get anything from us out of the deal. He did it because he wanted to. You know, we've been trying to get a new wheelchair for our our daughter Bree. And these things are custom built. So they are very expensive. The last one cost several thousand dollars, and the new one we're going to get is going to be even more than that. Now, the insurance company covers part of that, but we have to pay for part of that. It's called a copay. Now, we're grateful for the insurance company that they're paying a chunk of the cost for this wheelchair, but we don't marvel at their care and concern for us, right? They're obligated to do that. They have a legal responsibility to provide at least a portion of that expense. But recently there was a couple in our church that held a fundraiser 
in their business to give us money to help with our copay. And they did that not out of obligation. They did that because they loved us and they freely gave of their time and effort so that we could get this thing for our daughter. They weren't obligated. We should marvel at the love of Christ who freely gave himself for us. John 10, 18 says, No one's taken my life away from me. Jesus said this, But I lay it down on my own initiative. It's my choice. I'm giving my life to you. No one made me do this. Do this. We hear so often that Jesus died on a cross, that he gave himself up for us. But pause a moment and consider the magnitude of that, that he did it freely, that he did it because he wanted to. He wanted to please the Father. He wanted to express a love for us, a love with affection. And he did that by giving himself for us. He gave up more than his time and his money. It wasn't just the 30, 33 years or so that he had to deal with it. He gave up his dignity to become a man. He gave up his right to be worshipped and praised for a time as he was on earth. He gave up the prerogatives as God for a time when he became a man. He gave up fellowship with the Father while he was on the cross. He gave up his life. He gave himself for us. In his autobiography, Miracle on the River Kwai, Ernest Gordon tells of his experiences as a World War II POW. And he was suffered some pretty horrific and harsh conditions. One day he tells of a time they'd been working on a bridge. In fact, a bridge over the River Kwai. And they were, uh, at the end of the day, the Japanese guards did the customary counting of the various tools that had been used. And on this particular occasion, Ernest uh, expresses that one of the guards shouted out, A shovel's missing! And so they, they lined up the prisoners and they demanded that the the one who took the shovel step forward. But no one moved. And so the guard, in his rage, lifted his rifle and cocked it and pointed it at the first guy in line, and he says, I'll die! I'll die! And in that moment, one of the soldiers stepped forward. He said, I did it. And then that soldier was brutally beaten to death right in front of those men's eyes. Well, when they got back to camp they found that the shovels had been miscounted. They were all there. That man knowingly gave up his life for those other men. And we admire such an act of courage and sacrifice, don't we? And we should. But how much more should we admire Jesus' heroic act and His sacrifice? Because, you know, maybe... You know, you may have times or people may have asked you or it may be easy to wonder at times, what is so special or unique about Christ's death? I mean, many have died in the place of another, just like that soldier. Many others have been tortured for their beliefs. Many have been martyred themselves for a cause. Many have suffered unjust death. Many have died on a cross. But brothers and sisters, none of them gave up heaven. None of them were sinless. None of them suffered the full wrath of God for sin. None of them conquered Satan. None of them were your creator. None of them were your Lord. None of them were your God. Only one could die in your place. 
That's what makes that death special. Only one who enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father and gave up that fellowship to bear the full wrath of the Father for your sin. Only one could do that. His death was special. His sacrifice was significant. And what's more, Jesus didn't give himself up for his buddies. He didn't give himself up for his friends, but for his enemies. Right? There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. Jesus didn't give himself up for saints, but for sinners. He didn't give himself up for those who were spiritually healthy, but for the sick. He didn't give himself up for the righteous, but for the wicked. You know, the men in that POW camp actually were not getting along very well. A lot of the soldiers, there was a lot of infighting and bickering and selfishness. So when that young man stepped forward to sacrifice for his friends, he was doing it for those he didn't get along with. He suffered in their place and on their behalf, and that's what Christ did for us. He stepped forward in our place and suffered the punishment that you and I deserved. And we cannot, we cannot think about this enough because it should every time make us stand in awe and wonder at the great love of Christ. Oh, how we need to reflect on that. Because when we truly understand His love, it motivates us to love just as He loved us. 2 Corinthians 2 or 5 verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Remember in Luke 7, when Jesus went to the home of Simon the Pharisee? He invited him over for a meal, and he's reclining there. And as they're sitting there, this this woman walks in. Uh, she's described in Scripture as an immoral woman, either one who's committing adultery or a prostitute. And she's standing, Jesus is reclined there around the meal, and she's standing behind him. Do you remember what she was doing? She was weeping. And she was weeping so much that her tears were falling on Jesus' feet. And what did she do then? She got down on the ground and wiped his feet, his dirty feet with her hair. And why did she do that? Because remember, What was going on around them? These self-righteous jerks were looking at her with contempt and with Jesus at contempt. Does he realize who's touching him? Now, why did she do that? Why would she subject herself to the condemning scrutiny of those men? Why did she embarrass herself by openly weeping in front of them? Why did she degrade herself by wiping Jesus' dirty feet with her hair? Why did she do that? Because she loved much because she'd been forgiven much, right? She understood and experienced and realized through the grace of God, Christ's love for her. That reminds me of a story I had read, an account of the biography of Sir Robert Falconer. He was a Canadian seminary professor, a Greek professor actually, lived about 100 years ago. And one time... Falconer visited a poor sick woman. And there were a couple other women there too. They were all destitute, poor, kind of unseemly. And he went there and he began to read the Bible. And this is what the biography said about this instance. Falconer sat down on the side of the bed and read the story of Simon the Pharisee and the woman who was a sinner. 
When he ceased, the silence that followed was broken by a sob from somewhere in the room. It was a young, slender girl with a face disfigured by the smallpox. And save for the tearful look, it wore poor and expressionless. Will he ever come again? She sobbed. Who? asked Falconer. Him, Jesus Christ. I heard tell, I think, that he was to come again someday. Why do you ask? He said. Because, and then she said with a fresh burst of tears, putting her hand up to her poor, thin, colorless hair, she said, because my hair ain't long enough to wipe his feet. That's somebody who understood the love of Christ. And the more we understand that we are God's beloved children, the more we comprehend and meditate on the love of Christ for us, then we will do everything we can to wipe His hair with our feet. We'll do everything we can to worship Him and to do that by loving one another. We'll do everything we can out of love for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, give us that same heart as these women, Lord, who recognized that you are worthy of all praise. Lord, give us that same heart that understands your sacrifice for us, that understands your love for us, that understands who you are, so that we would be motivated to mimic you, to imitate you by loving one another. Lord, we confess we fall so far short. We are Lord, those who are attacked constantly by the flesh. Lord, we don't walk in faith as we should. Or we know that you've changed us if we placed our trust in you. We know that we're a new man, a new woman. God, by your Spirit, may you continue to renew and, and change us so that we would be those who love one another, so that we would be a testimony or to our families and to the lost that we are of Jesus, that we bear his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.